We're thankful that the Lord is uh, present with us. He's sovereign over us, and he calls us from the Word of God to heed and hear the Word of God and be softened by the Word of God. I uh, have been drawn to a topic this morning from Hebrews chapter 3, and I would invite you to turn there in your Bibles, and that is the topic of hard-heartedness, hard-heartedness. We want our hearts to be warm and not hard. And there is a warning in Hebrews chapter 3 for us to not have hardened hearts. So I was thinking of that topic, I was reminded of a a very terrifying condition that 50,000 people each year in our country and around the world it's more, but in our country 50,000 people contract a disease And it's a disease that has that mysterious word attached to it, which always frightens me. It's autoimmune. It's an autoimmune disease, and it's called scleroderma. Johns Hopkins Medicine says scleroderma is an autoimmune rheumatic and chronic disease that affects the body by hardening connective tissue. Scleroderma literally means hard skin. The Greek words sclera, which means hard, derma, skin, means that things can harden on the outside in a minor effect, but also in a more dangerous way, our internal organs can actually harden if we have this autoimmune condition. And it gets very dangerous when a major organ like your heart begins to harden. Dr. Hein and Weiss, uh, from 19, the 1920s, they connected this disease to be a root cause for pulmonary hypertension, coronary artery disease, and congestive heart failure, all which are lethal, terminal, or can be. And my mother-in-law uh, talked to Judy about this before. I mean, during Christmas, we think of loved ones that have been lost and have gone to eternity. She, she had this Condition. So it's a real condition. It's a, it's a sad one and a ser- very serious one. But as serious and as sad as this hard, heartening condition is, there is a sadder one. And that is the hard, heartening condition that isn't isolated to just 50,000 people in our country. This is a hard, heartening condition that the entire world and all of mankind for all of the ages has been born with, except for one, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom we've just sung and worshipped. We all are born sinners with a hard heart. Scleroderma is an autoimmune disease, meaning that the body is literally attacking itself. It's literally going against itself. It's saying to itself, something is wrong and it's overcompensating and harming itself. The hard-hardening condition that we have by sin is very similar. Our sin, which is inside of us, which is so personally part of us, is attacking itself within ourselves. Our hearts are literally attacking our hearts inside of us every single day. 
What's sad about scleroderma is we don't really know the cause, and so we, it's a complete mystery in terms of what the cure would be. But what is actually encouraging regarding the heart-hardening condition that we have inside of us, we actually know the cause. The cause is S-I-N, right? It is our sin. And the cure, my friends, is faith. There is a way for your hard heart to be softened and to be cured. Apart from this cure, the sad reality is there is death, but not just physical death, but eternal death. But the encouraging news is that your hard, heartening condition can be cured by faith. And faith not in faith, but faith in the object of the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith in a person who offers to soften your heart if you will let him do that. Sin makes death. Faith makes life. And we need our hearts to be warmed in faith, initially at salvation and throughout our Christian life and walk and experience. Here's the principle. And you have it on your sheet. If you have your outline sheet, it's up on the screen. Your heart left to itself will harden itself. If you believe that your heart can just remain on autopilot and you will be okay, you are greatly deceived. And you are in a dire and desperate situation. You have a sin disease, an autoimmune disease that is sin-driven where your heart will literally harden itself left to itself. And so Hebrews, the author, is warning the church not to allow this outcome to take place, not to allow this to just lie still and, and be left aside. But he takes it up with great force here. The author knows that wide is the road and few are those who find it. So listen, let's find this narrow road. Let's find this cure beginning at verse 7 of Hebrews 3. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Well, first of all, the cure to our hard heartening condition is faith. And it is faith that comes by hearing and hearing the word of the living Christ. We need to hear the word. If you want your heart to be softening, if you want it to be softened initially at salvation and softening, you have to be a hearer of the Bible. You have to hear God's word. I want to ask you just to get your minds engaged in the text at verse 7. Who do you think is speaking? It says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice. 
You have the Holy Spirit on the face who is speaking, and that's very obvious. Always interpret the scripture in terms of the obvious. The Holy Spirit says, however, he is quoting an Old Testament passage, which is Psalm 95, the latter portion of Psalm 95, which I take to be written and penned by David. It doesn't say that in a superscription. However, it sounds like David. It feels like David, and people think it's David. So it's probably written at 1000 BC. And David, this author, this poet, this shepherd boy turned king, the Holy Spirit through his mind, through his personality and through his experience and through his recounting of what had happened 400 years prior where the Israelites had been rescued, penned Psalm 95 as a historical record about what happened to that first generation. So who, my friends, is speaking? Well, The Holy Spirit is speaking, and then you have David who's written this, or an inspired author under the inspiration of Holy Scripture. But if you'll turn back with me to Psalm 95 in your Bibles, if you look at verse 7, you see the verses, I mean, verses 1 through 7, these are the verses that are leading up through 7 through 11. So verses 1 through 7, let's just begin there. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his. For he made it and His hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. This is a section of scripture that's familiar to us, but it speaks of the the indomitable God who is Yahweh, who is the creator of all things, who is the Lord over all things, who's the king above all gods. He is the one who made everything, formed the mountains, formed the sea. He has formed the dry land. He is worthy of worship. And all of this is preamble to say that this is the God who saw a people who were under bondage, under slavery, who had their own heart issues that were going on. And he reached down and delivered them and rescued them from Pharaoh. This is God the God, the Lord God of Israel. And so the author of Hebrews is connecting the dots here saying the Holy Spirit who has come, who has created the church, who has made a Jew and Gentile one people, but you in particular, Jewish Christians, you were raised reciting Psalm 95 in the temple. As little boys, you would come to the synagogue and you would sing Psalm 95 as a call to worship an evening Sabbath worship. You know this psalm, hear the word of God, hear it by the Holy Spirit, hear it by the the words of David, hear it by the testimony and words of the living God who is Yahweh. And then let us not forget the point of Hebrews 1. God has spoken by the prophets, Hebrews 1, the beginning verses 2 and 3. In the last days, he has spoken to us by his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the author is connecting God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit 
that are, that are speaking, God himself speaking through the word of God. Do you understand the significance of every time you come under the hearing of the word of God, that God is speaking to your heart? Do you understand that? That the word of God is living, it's powerful, it's active, it's inspired, it's infallible, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, it divides you by joint marrow, it, it takes you apart and then it puts you back together again. Every time that God's word is open, he's speaking and let me tell you this, God is always speaking and if you're not hearing the word of God, it's not God's fault. Do you get that? God, God is not a bad communicator. Jesus is the word, and the word of God is always going out. The problem is not the communicator. The problem is the receiver. If you don't hear the word of God on a heart level, it's because you have a bad antenna, a bad satellite system, a, blad, a bad, my technology, it's, it's failing me, a bad, bad Bluetooth system, a bad iPad, I don't know. You, you got a bad something going on. You, you're not able to receive it. In old school times, we had this thing called a radio. It had AM and it had FM. If you are naturally minded or in the world still and blinded by the world, the flesh, and the devil himself, then you are still on AM. Do you understand? And the Spirit of God wants you to go to FM. And so when the Holy Spirit comes to reside within you, your heart is opened. You are loose. The chains fall off. Your eyes are open. He gives you eyes to see and things move to FM and you're able to tune in. So the problem was never with God. The problem was always with you. Again, the Bible says in verse 7, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says. Now, what is the Holy Spirit saying? He's saying something very important for you to hear even today. And I use that word emphatically. Look at verse seven. Today, if you hear his voice, what is the emphasis of today here? Well, today is a call to urgency. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. Today is now. And today is the day that you are supposed to respond to the hearing of the word of God. You say, I want to respond tomorrow. But tomorrow, again, is not necessarily guaranteed. The offer of God for you to hear always comes with a limit. And the limit is your lifetime. You have a lifetime to hear the word of God or to reject the word of God. Do you understand me? And at the end of your life, it's over. You either responded to the word of God or you rejected the word of God. And so it comes with a cost or it comes with a prize. One person said it this way, we speak easily about tomorrow, but for us tomorrow may never come. We should live each day as if it were a lifetime. Today is the day of salvation, right? The Bible says it over and over, Matthew 24, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows. 2 Corinthians 6, 2, now is the day of salvation. James 4 says, come now you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. And then skipping down, what is your life for you are missed? It appears for a little time and vanishes away, Right? The earthquakes happen and we think about these things. The tremors shake, the foundations shake, and we think we don't necessarily have tomorrow as a guarantee. Someone gets a terminal diagnosis and we realize that life is short. 
and it needs to be held within days, hours, minutes, and seconds in conversations, not in terms of our expectations of what we think are promised to us. Luke 12, 20, fool this night, your soul is required of you. Well, the Holy Spirit is saying, while time still lasts, while life lasts, while you still have a chance, submit to God before your day closes. I was reading uh, some words from J.C. Ryle's classic book, Thoughts for Young Men. It's a booklet, actually, 38 pages. You can download it on a PDF. You can get it for free, and I like to get books that way. And he was the Bishop of Liverpool. He was a writer and speaker in the late 1800s, and he really hit it hard and well with this book, Thoughts for Young Men. He says, young men, don't think you can at will serve lust and pleasures in your beginning and then go and serve God with ease at your later end. Don't think you can live with Esau and die with Jacob. It's a mockery to deal with God and souls in a, in a fashion like this. It's an awful mockery to suppose you can give the flower of your strength to the world and the devil and then put off the king of kings with the scraps and remains of your heart, the wreck and remnant of your powers. I dare say to you, planning on a late repentance, I grant you, is fool, foolishness. One penitent thief was converted in the last hours that no man might despair, but I warn you, only one was converted that no man might presume. You do not know what you are doing. You're planning without God. The way of sin is downhill. A man cannot stop when he wants to. It's like going down, I don't know, Huffman or somewhere on a sheet of ice where you didn't plan to stop early enough. Then you push the brakes. I know this is my own experience, not yours. The tires aren't good enough and you're sliding going, well, oh my goodness, right? That's how our hearts are if we just leave them to themselves. If we aren't pumping the brakes with faith, it's just headlong into disaster, headlong into problems, headlong perhaps even into a Christless eternity in hell. Firefighters had set up a net beneath a 10-story floor building and the billows of smoke were going up. And so those who were on the ledge by the window who needed to jump could not see the net. All they could do is hear the voices of the firefighters saying, jump, jump, jump. This is your only way out. This is your only chance. They hesitate. They don't act on what they know is true and necessary. They know it's true and necessary. They know that this is the way out, but they begin to wonder. I wonder if there's really some other way. I wonder if there's something I need to take with me still instead of jumping. I wonder, I wonder. And they sit there and begin to suffocate. They think of the fear of being hurt by falling so far and perhaps the net really isn't there. They think of the embarrassment of jumping. They rationalize away hearing and responding to the calls for rescue. But the point is that knowing about danger and knowing the way to be saved is never, ever enough. You know the gospel. You know the way of salvation. But knowing the gospel and knowing that that's the only way to be saved is never enough. You have to jump. You have to jump. You have to believe when life is at stake nothing else should matter 
D.L. Moody, the famous evangelist and preacher from Chicago, would preach revivals. And he ended one saying, go home and think about what I have said. And that night, the Chicago fire broke out and people from that congregation died. Suffice it to say, he never ended a revival that way again. So the point is, when God speaks, listen. Don't deny the convicting work of the Holy Spirit because uh, you have an autoimmune deficiency. You have a sin disorder in your heart and a heart left to itself will harden itself. Number one, hear the word of God and now let's get into the text. Heed the warning that is before us. This is a warning that comes in terms of a historical record. Look at your Bibles. It's a historical record. 430 years of bondage did the Israelites undergo under the hand of Pharaoh more bricks, less straw. And they whipped these Israelites and abused them. So God responded, speaking to Moses through a burning bush, sending him there to stand for truth, to stand against uh, Satan's enemy, or the enemy that was the satanic figure, I should say. And ultimately, when the plagues came, And the firstborn son of all the Egyptians was killed. His life was stuffed out. Pharaoh said these words in Exodus 12, 31 and 32. Go, he's saying it to Moses. He's saying it to the Israelites. Go, serve the Lord. Be gone. This is how humbled Pharaoh was in this temporary humbled moment. He said, bless me also. Go, serve the Lord. Be gone and bless me. Pray to your God who is this mighty to bless us because we are in despair. So 600,000 men, if you put the women and children with that, 1,500,000 souls left Egypt, the livestock with them on their conquest to the promised land. They went in orderly fashion. They went by tribal division. Ephraim, one of the tribes, triumphantly bearing the wooden box or catafalque, a a wooden box that had Joseph's bones to be transported back back to Palestine, was with them, Exodus 13, 19. An immense cloud would, would represent God's presence and lead them forward, and at night, a pillar of fire. It must have been a spectacular display of God's glory in creation as he was leading them, and ultimately leading them to the Red Sea where they were miraculously delivered to walk through on dry land, being pursued by the hard-hearted Egyptians. Well, what began so well ultimately turned into an utter disaster for the first generation of the Israelites. In fact, I just want to say only two of those Israelites from the first generation who were over the age of 20, so the younger ones were spared, but only two made it to the promised land out of a million 500,000. Isn't that amazing? Who are they, class? Joshua and Caleb, right? That's why we name our kids those names. (laughs) We're like, man, there was a, at Kadesh Barnea, there was a majority vote and a minority vote, and the minority vote lost at that point, Numbers 13, 32. They came back, the 10 of the 12 spies, saying, We saw the Nephilim there, descendants of Anak, and we seemed to be like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. 
Well, back to our text. Our text is a quotation from Psalm 95. This is a a Greek rendering from the original Hebrew. And that's significant because there are two words that are place, geographic marker place words um, that are Massa and Meribah. And that'll become significant in a minute. If you look down, it says in verse 8, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, that is from the original Hebrew Massa, and on the day of testing, which is from the original Hebrew derivation of Meribah. Those, those words translate in an actual account in Exodus and Numbers to the place of rebellion where the Israelites at Massa and Meribah provoked the Lord, where they rebelled against the Lord, where they defected against the Lord, where they tested the Lord with their grumbling and their complaining. Can I open that up to you? Exodus 17.1. Here it is in that fateful moment. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of Sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim and there was no water for the people to drink. Listen, one of the strongest appetites even beyond any other physical or spiritual appetite is the appetite or the, the passion to drink water or eat food. It's the, it's the desire to survive. So we understand that. Therefore, the people quarreled and Moses said, give us uh, with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? There's those words, quarrel and test, Massa and Meribah. But the people thirsted there for water and people grumbled against Moses and said, why do you bring us out of Egypt and kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord and he said, what shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some Some of the elders of Israel, take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and the water shall come out of it and the people will drink. The rock, as we know in the New Testament, a symbol of Christ, a symbol of thirst quenching salvation that would come at least physically to this first generation. And Moses did so on the side of the elders of Israel. He called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel. You would think that that would be the place of salvation, the place of conquering glory, but the story was not really a good one. And because they tested me, the Lord said, is the Lord among us or not? Well, there's greater commentary on this, even in Numbers 20, verse 1. There's context here, even for Moses and what he was going through. And the people of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin, which was the Zin place from the earlier text in the first month. And the people stayed in Kadesh. And listen what happened in Moses' life during this time. And Miriam died there and was buried there. So Moses has lost his wife, whom he loved, And there was no water for the congregation. And they assembled themselves there again against Moses, against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses. Would that we would have perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? Why have we 
Why have you made us come out of Egypt? Can you believe they're saying that? They were slaves. They were being beaten. They were being destroyed. They were being emotionally, spiritually, physically destroyed. And they want to go back. Why have you taken us to this evil place? Skip down to verse 6. And Moses and Aaron, they went, in from the, went out from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent meeting and fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord said to Moses, take the staff. And assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. Don't hit the rock this time. Tell the rock something. Speak to the rock. How odd is that, right? And so you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle and Moses. Now again, Moses is upset. He's lost his wife. He's worn down by the grumbling and complaining. And his own heart, left to itself, will begin to harden itself. That's what was going on. Moses, though a believer, was not allowed to enter into the promised land, right? You remember? Why? Because he did not act by faith at this point. Faith is what softens your heart. At this point, Moses, a believer, was hardening his heart. Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. And then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he said, here now you rebels. That's a great way to approach the congregation of God, right? You rebels. Could you imagine? Good morning. Welcome to Anchorage Grace Church, you rebels. You rebels. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and he struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly and the congregation drank in their livestock. God can bless even if he's overriding our sin, sinfulness, and lack of faith. And that's what he does here. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe, there's the word, because you did not exercise faith in me. To uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land, the land that I've given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of of Israel quarreled with the Lord. Through them, he showed himself holy. Lack of faith. It's defection. It's defection. It's when life gets really hard and you get really thirsty and you lack faith. You begin to grumble and you begin to quarrel and you begin to complain. Listen, the grumbling and complaining was bad, but you know what was worse? The first generation's lack of faith. A lack of faith is sin in the first degree. A lack of faith is what sends you to a Christless hell. If you do not believe, then you will not survive. You will die and you will die spiritually. The rebellion was not an isolated incident. It was a series of rebellions. It was 10 of them, according to Numbers 14.22, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test. They've seen my glory and my signs, all I did in Egypt, and you've put me to the test these 10 times and have not obeyed my voice. It's a generation of hard-heartedness. Look at verse 9 in your Hebrews 3, verse 9 text. It says, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. What's the emphasis here? 
the generation putting the Lord to the test or the generation seeing the works for 40 years? Testing the Lord for 40 years or seeing the works for 40 years? Which is it? The answer is yes, it's both. They saw the Lord's work. They saw the power of God. They saw the faithfulness of the Lord and they provoked the Lord. They provoked the Lord. They provoked the Lord. It's a scary place to be. When you see the Lord's work, when you see God's hand, you see his faithfulness, you see his provision, you see his power, you see his salvation, you see him save people, you see him give you encouragement, you see him give you timely words from the scripture, you see his rescue, and then you harden your hearts and you harden your hearts and you harden your hearts and you allow for your heart to just be left on its own. That's what provoked the Lord. You know, there are people who say, well, if I was there back in the day, if I was Noah and I heard directly from God, guess what? I would believe, I'd have strong faith. If I was Abraham and I heard from the Lord, go here, I would do stuff like that. Hey, even if I was Moses and heard directly from the Lord, I would be strong as a believer. What about if I was an apostle? Peter, James, John, Andrew. What, what if I was one of those and I got to walk and talk directly with the Lord Jesus face to face? I would believe him. Really? Really? Well, Luke 16, and I've heard that a lot in Bible studies. People just sort of saying things in a cavalier way, smiling and saying, look, we don't have it as good as they did. Luke 16 is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And you remember Lazarus, he goes to heaven and the rich man goes to hell. And there's a great chasm between heaven and hell, between Abraham's bosom, which is a picture of heaven, and hell, which is the unquenchable fire where the rich man is bidding God, which is pictured as Abraham's voice from heaven, but bidding God that that he, he could just have a touch of water on his tongue. And ultimately, the rich man in his despair begins to despair not only for himself, but for his brothers. Because it's so bad in hell, he is despairing the idea that the outcome could be the same for them. And obviously, this rich man knows that as he did not have faith in this lifetime, his brothers are not exercising faith currently in their lifetime. And so what is God's response? Abraham said, Well, let's look at verse 27. He said, then I beg you, father, this is the rich man, send him to my father's house. Send Lazarus there, for I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, this is God speaking back. They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. You know what this is saying? If, if people won't hear from this, from Moses and the prophets, from the word of God, Ain't no amount of an experience that's going to shake somebody awake from death to life. Nothing. There's no amount of histrionics, of wild things happening. Even a a legitimate resurrection from death where 
Lazarus has died. He comes back. I'm here. Listen, believe. Someone in their hard-heartedness would rationalize that away. Well, that person really didn't die. That never happened. Obviously, well, that person's alive, so he didn't die. The, the urge, like, like thirst for water when you're, when you're dying of thirst, is the same kind of urge for sin that a hard heart wants so desperately. They want their way. They want their sin. They want their appetites to be filled with the flesh. So much so that left to itself, apart from God's grace, apart from faith, will never turn to God to see Christ. No amount of history, no no amount of archaeological digs, no amount of logical debates, no amount of biblical evidences can change a hard heart. Verse 10, it says, Therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their hearts. The word astray is planao. It's the picture of a a wandering planet wandering through the solar system. A heart that's hardened will always be going astray. But the answer is so simple. It's genuine saving faith. You can't soften your heart, but Jesus can. Turn with your hard heart and go to Jesus and say, Jesus, I can't soften me. Will you soften me? I've tried to soften me. I've tried to grow a conscience. I've tried to be humble. I've tried to discipline myself into a right state before God. I've tried to work my way there. I've tried to counsel my way there. I've tried to pray my way there. I've tried to do things, do enough to get there, but I can't do it. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. I'm hearing you now. I'm open now. My heart is hard now. Jesus, soften my heart now. Please soften me. I'm at the end of myself. For by grace are we saved through what? faith and that not of ourselves it's a soft heart that jesus makes when we turn to him to make it soft the idea is knowing the lord personally says they always go astray in their heart they've not known me in heaven one day people who thought they knew christ will be found to have never known him at all matthew 7 Many say, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name, cast out demons, did mighty works in your name. I will declare to them, what? I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This generation was not allowed in the promised land because they were not part of the promise. The promised land is all bound up in the Abrahamic promise, the Abrahamic covenant, I will give you this land. I will make you a people, a people of believers, right? Abraham is the father of faith. You can be believers with soft hearts. And that ties together with Revelation 4 and 5, where from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, we are gathered together as God's people who are believers, who are believers. You say, my heart has been hardening lately. Well, check your faith. Examine your heart. Examine your faith with scripture. Be a hearer of the word of God and beg Christ to soften it again. 
none of that first generation saw the land that was sworn to their fathers. It was the second generation, but only two made it, Joshua and Caleb. Only two made it into the rest, and then the second generation did. Verse 11, it says, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. What is the rest? The rest is physically Canaan in terms of this account, but spiritually it's a picture of heaven. Sabbath rest. We're going to talk about that next week. We're going to talk about how you aren't an island unto yourself. We need each other to get to the promised land. We need each other to keep our hearts soft in Christian sanctification as we're headed to a place spiritually, which is heaven. But for now, I want to leave you with the idea that, again, you have an autoimmune disorder, hopefully not scleroderma, but for sure you have a hard heart that if it's left unchecked, it will kill you eternally. A hardened heart, listen to this, a hardened heart misses heaven and a hardened heart stays angry with God eternally in hell. That's why there's weeping and gnashing of teeth because people shake their fist at God in a hardened state for all of eternity. Don't go there. Today is the day of salvation. There's still hope. There's still time to believe and the cure is belief. If Jesus softens your heart, if he has already softened your heart, worship him, thank him, praise him, glorify him, bow before him. Let us kneel before the Lord, our God, our maker, for he is our God.